0: Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Our podcast. To commemorate World Ocean Day, we're featuring a world authority on ocean research, oceanographer Dr. Rick Spinrad, current administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. He also serves as U.S. Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere. Dr. Spinrad, who previously served as NOAA's chief scientist under the Obama administration, recently visited Esri headquarters in California And gave a talk at the university of redlands about the ocean climate realities and the global economy so the job we have at noaa really is about collecting information interpreting it and developing what we like to call decision aids the things that you need as an individual as a community as a corporation to make fundamental decisions now you know that in terms of our weather products you look at the weather forecast if you're a boater you look at our navigational charts you look at what's uh, safe to eat in terms of seafood you probably wonder how are we doing in growing our own seafood and aquaculture those are all obvious and direct uh, contributions that we make through our products and services but I'm thinking about the future and one of the reasons I was so excited to spend the day here at Esri is because this is where we're looking at a whole new way of doing things. And my mnemonic device for thinking about this is what I call Suzy Q. Suzy Q, the first part, S-U, is what I characterize as seemingly unrelated, seemingly unrelated data sets. And this is where geographic information systems, geospatial information systems, are really valuable, and we're starting to look at how can we take our ability to predict a heat wave and combine it with data from the Census Bureau to determine where the impact is going to be greatest, where the most vulnerable communities are, and also we now recognize that you can see as much as 10 or 15 degrees Fahrenheit difference in a small city just due to the fact that one community has lots of trees and lawns and shady areas and another community is paved over parking lots. How do we take these seemingly unrelated data and combine them, and oh, by the way, the other layer, if you will, in terms of layers of data, is where the houses of prayer are. Wow, houses of prayer, turns out that houses of prayer, mosques, temples, synagogues, churches, are pretty good cooling centers. And the faith-based community wants to provide that service. But they wanna know, when do I need to offer up my house of prayer as a cooling center? Where, which houses of prayer are most appropriate to serve as cooling centers? And can you give me three or four days lead time so that I can prepare? to turn on the air conditioning or just provide uh, water and and places for people to cool down and relax. Wouldn't have thought about that, that relationship of data. But through the use of these combinatorial techniques, if you will, through GIS, we can start asking these questions. How do we get the information to people in a way that they understand it, that they can make decisions, And so we spent a lot of time over the last two years at NOAA doing a lot of roundtables with tribes in Alaska, with local communities in the southwest, with business leaders in small towns in Connecticut who are concerned about flooding, trying to understand where we can... We don't don't know where the decisions are going to be made in a local community. We do know how to predict the weather in a local community. We do know how to tell the people in Charleston, South Carolina what they might expect in terms of sea level rise, storm surge, 10, 20, 25 years from now. So how do we work with these communities in a way that gets our understanding of their needs, but also gets them the products and services that they can use in an understandable manner? And now it's become so obvious that it's an Earth system. Uh, And one of my favorite examples is harmful algal blooms. So depending on where you are in the country, red tides, as some people call it, um, the impacts of a red tide depend on the ocean system and also the atmosphere, the winds, and the surface pressure. And in order to provide warnings, for example, in Tampa, they have one particularly insidious red tide that causes respiratory problems. And so, The national ocean service has the expertise and knowledge to say we understand the conditions that lead to the development of this particular red tide that produces aerosols and then the national weather service says yes it is or no it isn't a problem because you've got prevailing westerly winds so tampa all of your public health service folks ought to be prepared for an increase in uh, hospital admittances for respiratory problems that's a classic example of where the Ocean service, the weather service, our satellite data and information service work together. And so, again, we've learned that Earth is a system. And we've got to address all of the challenges from an ocean perspective, from an atmospheric perspective, and also when you start looking at fisheries. Right now, one of our big efforts is in the impact of climate change on fisheries. The salmon are moving north. The lobsters are moving out of the Gulf of Maine. And if we don't understand the physical dynamics that are affecting that, we won't be able to manage the fisheries appropriately. And being able to give people that information in the geospatial context that says, this is what you need to be prepared for, this is how to exploit the fact that it's going to rain. So if you're a reservoir manager, there are rules of thumb for managing reservoirs. And they were built without a good understanding of atmospheric rivers. So now that we have a better understanding, and we know that, I'll get the numbers wrong, but it's something like 70% of the precipitation that we see here on the West Coast uh, is attributable to atmospheric rivers. How do we adjust those rules of thumb for reservoir operations? And and, and if I can kind of riff a little bit on that one too, because when you talk about reservoir operations, most people think in terms of purely water quantity, how much water gets released, how much water gets retained, What I've got to worry about at NOAA is also water quality, because you may release that water from the reservoir, but if it's the wrong temperature, you're affecting the spawning grounds for the salmon that we are responsible for managing. I like to discriminate between the blue economy, which most people have a general sense of, and what we're talking about now about the new blue economy. So the blue economy, as traditionally defined at at NOAA, especially in the coal shop, we've done a lot of analysis, and it's shipping, it's transportation, it's oil and gas, it's recreation and tourism, it's all of the things you think about that generate revenue and serve as a basis for economic development around the ocean. Um, Part of our job at NOAA as part of the Department of Commerce is to do that in as sustainable a manner as possible. The new blue economy is the economy based on information. So the product of extractive industries like fisheries, is to pull something out, hopefully grow it again, um, and literally take something tangible out of the ocean. The new blue economy says there's value in understanding the ocean. So the classic example, and, and I learned about this when I worked for the Navy, was that if the fleet has to move from here to there, the fleet wants to know where's the best way, what's the best way to go, what's the best route. And so there's value to the U.S. Navy to have that information. Uh, Halsey's hurricane was, for those of you who are uh, uh, Navy folks, you know the story that Admiral Halsey had some real problems with the hurricane in World War II. That's when the Navy realized we'd better get environmental information to make these decisions. So you can think about commercial shipping needing value added, as we say, products and services. What's the value of commercial information development. And if you think this is sort of a obscure concept, think about commercial weather. Commercial weather is about a 10 billion dollar industry. I'm convinced that the commercial ocean information opportunity is uh orders of magnitude larger than that. And and the the case studies are so abundant where we can monetize the value of information. Reservoir operation is a really interesting one because it brings in hydrology, meteorology, fisheries, as well as all of the socioeconomic issues of who gets the water, the agricultural community or the fishing community. So that's the sort of quick overview of what are, what are seemingly unrelated data sets, which when combined into a decision aid, can help people make decisions about saving their lives, protecting property in ways we hadn't done before. That's the SU in Suzy q The next one is SI, sparse and incoherent. These devices go in the water. They basically sink down to a pre-designated depth, typically 200 meters, some of the deeper ones down to several thousand meters, and drift along for a couple of weeks, 10 days, two weeks. And then they come back up to the surface. They collect data the whole time. How cold is the water? What's the salinity? Uh, what is the pressure and density structure of the water look like? And we're adding new sensors too, what we call biogeochemical sensors, so sensors that talk about the productivity, how many nutrients, what kinds of nutrients are in the water, what about oxygen, how much oxygen is the water, uh, is there chlorophyll in the water. And these data now are, are coming back, they come back up, transmit their data, then they go back down again and drift for another 10 days or two weeks. We now have close to 4,000 of these, yeah it looks like a lot but. Anybody who understands geospatial information knows if you zoom in on this, it's anywhere from 20 to 50 miles between each of these sensors. Would you be happy if the only weather observations that we had were made every 50 miles on land? No, you wouldn't. The quality of the forecast would be really bad. We have much, much denser data. They're also, as as a scientist, we would call these incoherent. There's really no no arrangement in how these data are collected. It's kind of chaotic and scattered. Being able to collect data that are sparse and incoherent and then apply extraordinary new techniques, some of which I just learned about today in our briefings, to interpret what does the rest of the ocean look like from these isolated measurements is fascinating and extremely useful. Many of you probably have heard that we now know that most of the heat that has been stored in the Earth's system as a result of climate change is stored in the oceans, in the deep oceans. We learned that from this Argo Ray. Incidentally factoid, the amount of heat that's been stored since about the 1950s in the world ocean is the energetic equivalent of an Hiroshima bomb going off twice a second since the 1950s. That's a lot of heat. That is a lot of energy. And it's all down there in the ocean. We didn't know that 10 years ago we had no idea. Now we do, because we've got these data. And we know it because we've been able to apply these sophisticated analytical techniques to really understand what this means in terms of climate change. The last part, I told you it was Susie Q. I had to think hard about what Q stands for. Q stands for quizzical. Quizzical in the sense of scratch your head, really, you can do that? I want you to imagine that you're walking down the street and you have a sensor that can sense the DNA in the air. And from that sensor, you can say in the last two hours, there were 137 people that walked past here, two dogs, a raccoon, and five squirrels. <laughs> That's what eDNA is. Environmental DNA. We don't sample the organisms. We're not catching these rockfish and, and analy- analyzing their DNA. We're collecting the water that they swam through. And because all organisms shed skin cells and fluids, we can analyze the water for the DNA in there and say there are five of these, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. We can do that with environmental DNA. And the ability now to use a satellite, a satellite that's about uh, 25,000 miles in orbit to see where the individual lightning strikes are has proven to just shatter all of our concepts about preparedness for wildfire can't use it alone, though, like the eDNA. You gotta use it with something else. You gotta combine it with data on the winds, on soil moisture, on precipitation, in order to be able to make a prediction that, you know, you better deploy your resources over here because you're gonna have a major outbreak of fire over here. And oh, by the way, the winds are blowing this way, so you're gonna have a problem in Los Angeles with winds coming, coming through. The combination of those data to be able to make forecast predictions and analysis has really revolutionized what we're doing. And my point here with the Q and the Suzy Q is, this is so exciting. I have no idea what my successor 10 years from now will tell you is the portfolio of new observational techniques. We're using satellites to measure methane. We're new, we're, we've got capabilities for remote sensing of carbon dioxide. That blows my mind that we can do this kind of thing. What does the future have to hold? Well, part of the future is, again, the ability to take this information and for each cylinder there's a profile there's a characterization it would be like me saying in this audience that I could characterize the audience by height, weight, hair color, eye color for each person sitting here and then I could reconstruct the audience at any time because I've got a record of what those characteristics are the difference here is we got many many more variables the temperature, salinity, with depth the dissolved oxygen, the phosphate, the nitrate, the silicate. It's, it's limitless what you can do with this kind of information. And when you've got the ocean characterized this way, just as I might be able to characterize this audience that way, then I can start doing some really cool analyses. How many, how many men and women are in the audience? Where are the hot spots in the ocean? Where are the Highest areas of productivity. Where do we think those blue whales are going to go tomorrow? Where do we think the Chinook salmon are going to be tomorrow? Where should we be concerned about if there's a spill of some sort at sea over the next five weeks? So I'm going to close out here with my formal comments and just try to convey to you that it is... It's a brave new world. I came out of retirement to take this job. I I have failed retirement twice now. Um, And I came out of retirement and left my gorgeous home in the high desert of central Oregon because I was so excited. Seriously, it sounds trite, but I was so excited, first of all, that the administration that came in said, we wanna try to address climate change and the problems associated with it. And also because I knew the power of technology that was emerging right now. And I knew the workforce at NOAA, and I said, sign me up. If I can help build new tools and new capabilities and make my great-grandchildren proud, then I will have done my job. And my job is fundamentally very simple. It's to protect lives, livelihoods, and lifestyles. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Our podcast. And thanks to Dr. Spinrad for describing how we can advance our economy and safeguard our environment using data, science, and geospatial technology. If you like this episode, please share it with a colleague.